Call it serendipity, luck, or being in the right place at the right time. But Miriam Sturkenboom led the IMI's Project Advance, which built a pan-European safety monitoring network for vaccines. You can't make it up, but the project ended in March of 2019. Six months later, the world was thrown into chaos with the Wuhan virus, and Advance, rebranded vac for eu now finds itself at the center of a tsunami of vaccine rollouts and safety studies in Europe. Miriam is the head of the Department of Data Science and Biostatistics at the University Medical Center Utrecht in the Netherlands. She is a PhD of mathematics and physics and the past president of the International Society for Pharmacoepidemiology, serving as an expert to the EMA, FDA, WHO, and many other leading organizations. Miriam, it's great to speak with you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Twain. And it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Here you are. You finish Advance in March of 2019. You're probably struggling for funding. You're trying to set up VAC for EU, and then all hell breaks loose. <laughs> what exactly is your day-to-day -day looking like today? What are you doing at the project? Well, Dwayne, I'm um, trying to coordinate and manage uh, a lot of activities that are ongoing with many of our members. So through vac for You, which is a non-for-profit non association with 24 members, we are working on many studies that monitor the safety of the COVID-19 vaccines. And my day-to-day -day job is like getting the people together, talking about how we define the events, like how we do the methods together, like try to discuss a line so that we can produce robust evidence in, in the best way possible and help each other. But you're still teaching, right? You still have a full teaching load as well? Well, I'm uh, head of a department, so I have a lot of work <laughs> next to that <laughs> and also teaching. So. <laughs> Wow. So I mean, it must be busy. Yes, it's busy and I could use more sleep. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to the weekend. <laughs> are there companies there? Are you involved in clinical research right now? Or are you actually doing safety studies for actual vaccines coming online? I mean, how is that working? I mean, obviously you're under confidentiality, but... Back for you is, is uh, involved in supporting uh, many studies. One, some that are conducted through the EMA or that EMA has requested to European Medicines Agency. So they had prepared for the COVID-19 vaccine rollout where we calculated background rates. Then they had an early COVID vaccine monitor study with cohort event monitoring and also uh, safety studies on EHR. And now we are doing some safety signal evaluation. Furthermore, we are working with some of the companies, uh, the, the big ones, to, to help them fill the regulatory requirements. With the previous false alarms over MERS and swine flu, things sort of remained contained. I suppose you could say the same about Ebola. When did you know that COVID-19 was going to be different? When did you know that things were going to get bad and serious? Well, I think we realized uh, only in January 2020. Like, of course, the world knew that this was happening over Christmas in, in China. Uh, but uh, I think in January, end of January, when WHO gave the warning, I mean, the world realized that this was coming very close and spreading quickly. So that's when we really started to worry. And where were you in the project at that point? Where were you in the infrastructure and getting set up? I mean, were you ready or was it still like, oh my God, here we are and we've still got stuff to do? So we were at the point that, you know, the, the advanced project that was really designing and testing an ecosystem had finished. We had set up this organization and then just in January, it was like going through, it was signed by the King of Belgium as a non-for-profit international association. So we were formally existing, so that was good. Uh, but we had to do the entire, uh, you know, setup of the organization and, and doing that. So we needed to kickstart that uh, a lot. But so there was an entity, but the internal organization wasn't completely uh, set up. But we managed to do that quickly. 
Talk about being at the right place at the right time. That's crazy. Yeah. Yes, it's crazy. (laughs) COVID-19 is somewhat odd in that the impact is quite heterogeneous. If you're under 20, the impact is somewhere around, the mortality rate's one in a million, give or take, at least in the U.S. CDC data. But if you're over 80, you have a 20% chance, one in five of mortality. I mean, it's very, very devastating once you get over 65. What specific challenges does this create from a public health standpoint? Well, my work actually is not impacted so much by that, but it's it's a very clear curve, as you say, and I think it has been dealt with uh, adequately in, in rolling out the vaccines uh, to the elderly first and the persons at risk, and now increasingly going to younger ages so that you know those that benefited most immediately were vaccinated first. Uh, so I think we recognized it, that this was the curve, and vaccination rollout programs have been adapting to that. Some countries were better than others. I mean, the mm-hmm. Flanders and the Netherlands were very good, whereas the U.S. tried to play politics and was trying to give it out to people who worked for the government, teachers and things. Why do you think that this got politicized? Well, the WHO gave some recommendations, um, but any every country then may actually implement it differently. So I, I don't know what the... In- you know, the local or the national reasoning was, but it's clear that there were some differences in the implementation. Although in Europe, we have been more or less uh, aligned uh, with, the, with the strategies. You know, before COVID-19, those of us who you know, work in the sector, you know, we'd been saying that vaccines were becoming radically underinvested. Matter of fact, people were pulling capacity out how different is the environment now? Is this completely changed? Well, I think it has changed radically. I mean, and I think many people, every person in the world has seen what the impact of vaccines can can be. So going from complete lockdowns to, you know, having hospitals flowing over, I mean, I think now the situation is much different, at least in the more developed parts of the world. I mean, we have a lot to do still to, to, to go to all the sites, but but that's what we see as an impact now. And, and we had forgotten, I think, many people had forgotten what, what vaccines may be able to do because we don't see the, the, the diseases anymore like polio. or so, so the impact of those vaccinations are not so visible. And I think that's where we are now and that we see the potential. So there will be investment. There is a lot of investment for, for the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation through the Commission, through many funding organizations to have better epidemic preparedness. And that includes capacity to actually uh, manufacture vaccines if they are needed. Belgium and the EU broadly initially tried to get a low price where they were willing to sacrifice access initially for price. And what became very obvious very quickly in the case of Belgium, you saved roughly 120 million euros, but it cost you 30 billion in GDP. <laughs> uh, there was a German finance minister who said, boy, instead of locking down, we should have invested in factories. Do, do you think that there's going to be real change now, or is this just lip service? Are, is, is there going to be a real push to make sure this doesn't happen again from an infrastructure standpoint? This is what we see. And, and uh, you know, if there is no market or if there's no gain, uh, people may shift their investments to other pieces, but I hope we have learned this lesson. The same was true for the uh, the safety monitoring infrastructures, like they build up and then, you know, once the, the pandemics are gone, you know, they, they are not maintained. So there is not a solid uh, investment in, in the required capacity or the readiness to address this uh, if needed. And, and I hope this lesson will be learned, but we know that you know, they're always priorities and they may start to differ when this fades away again. What's potentially interesting now though, 
we have an mRNA vaccine, which was initially developed as an anti-cancer agent. So now we may be able to come at some of these diseases, you know, HIV, for example, which is a coronavirus. Hopefully there's an understanding that having this infrastructure and investing in this infrastructure, not seeing healthcare as a cost, but actually seeing this as a potential benefit, maybe there will be a willingness to try and lead on some of these technologies. I mean, one of the leading companies is a German company, one would hope. The university where you're at, at Utrecht, do you see new PhDs trying to go into this? Uh, in, in the Netherlands, biotech is good. So we have <laughs> uh, some nice biotech uh, spin-offs, but it's quite complex what is happening. So the mRNA platform, for example, which has been so successful, I mean, it's very different from one place to the other. So it's not just a platform. It's also how you produce it and the lip and the particles around it to protect it. So we saw with CureVac that, you know, the, the mRNA platform actually was not as effective. So there is a lot of like even production stability, how to present it. That's quite different, even on a mRNA platform. You know, the dose in the Pfizer, uh, the antigen in, in the Pfizer vaccine is much less than in the Moderna vaccine. And so there is a lot, even amongst mRNA platforms, there is a lot to learn uh, how to deliver the best dose and have it in a stable manner. So I think that's where the improvement needs to be done, how you can keep it stable, even if it's not at minus 80, uh, but, you know, in, in a bit better cold chain ways, but, you know, not as complicated as for the for the initial vaccine. So there, there is a lot of improvement that needs to be done. So this is an area of active research around the world. Yeah. Obviously, Germany, a lot of the vaccine hesitancy movement started in Germany around Stuttgart 20, 25 years ago. Obviously, France has had issues with a, a large outbreak of the measles. Do you think governments have done a good job getting around COVID-19, you know, hesitancy with regards to addressing these public health issues and you know trying to get people more willing to accept the vaccination program without going to mandates, which obviously there's a lot of pushback against those now. It's difficult, Wayne, I think, for the, you know, now to speak about whether they have done it right or not. I mean, it's, I, I don't envy the people that were in the front line in communicating, you know, from the public health first about the COVID-19, about the measures to be taken, about the restrictions, the lockdowns everybody having an opinion, be people being threatened even because of doing their jobs and, and spending nights and days to do it. So, so I don't want to criticize what was being done, but what I, can, what I think we see is that initially there was a lot of focus on how fast we now could produce these vaccines. And of course, I mean, we should have been talking much more about how it's possible that you speed up so that the faster production of these vaccines doesn't mean less quality, but actually maybe even better quality than we usually had, but what was lacking? So I think that's where an, an area of communication that should have been done better and be prepared better. Like, But, you know, I, I understand that there is just so much you can do, but that's an area I think where we could have been doing better. And now we see the hesitancy. So and people have taken positions and then it's difficult to, you know, to make them change because it seems that people are just seeking for the evidence that confirms their thought rather than for the contrary. But so, again, I, I think... A lot of the vaccine acquisitions at the government level, Pfizer's contract for the initial acquisition wasn't actually for delivery until September last month. It seems like a lot of this is the reaction to, say, the initial banning of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was sort of ham-fisted in the way it was communicated at the government level. Some could even make an argument now about the way the Moderna has been pulled off the shelf in, in Scandinavia. Is there a real issue here the way there's sort of a reflux in the public health community where 
a lack of judiciousness in some ways. It's sort of a snap judgment. I think it's important to look at history. So uh, every country is able to make those decisions. So we have like WHO recommendations. We have like EMA, FDA recommendations. Within EMA, uh, EMA can make a recommendation or the PRAC can make a benefit risk assessment. That's what they do periodically. But countries are, you know, able to overrule that or take their own. And, and, and that's what we have been seeing. And I don't think it has led to more understanding. So it's difficult to understand why, you know, in the Netherlands, they continue and in Scandinavia, they pull it off the mark. Sure. But there is a history in Scandinavia and that was with H1N1 and narcolepsy. So they are very vigilant that they don't expose their population to something which may be damaging. Uh, and if there is an alternative, they they probably uh, take that approach. And in France, I mean, there has been major concerns about, you know, the multiple sclerosis after hepatitis B vaccine. So there is a history in each of these countries on the basis of which they take decisions, which may not seem rational or consistent with other countries. But, you know, who's there to judge? I think it's the, they they are the ones that are communicating. And I have different thoughts about this, but... I have a different perspective. So sure. One of the things that's been interesting is seeing the debate around adverse events starting to come out because no one was talking about this. There was a presentation by Dr. Jessica Rose as part of the FDA discussion around boosters, when to boost, not to boost. And it was public. Mm-hmm. And, and she pointed out that there are quite a lot of adverse events that have been happening. Are we doing enough around the monitoring of the adverse events, do you think, because there is something going on there. There was a recent study that showed that, you know, there's a serious adverse event for one out of every 400 vaccines, which caught my eye. That did seem quite higher than I was anticipating. Are we doing a good job? Okay, so that's a big question, doing. So are we doing a good job? I think so. So what I'm seeing, at least in the parts of the world that I, I can see directly, what's being done is there was a lot of preparedness in terms of calculating incidence rates that would inform you to assess whether, you know, what we actually see now as adverse, reported adverse events are what you would expect because disease also occurs naturally. So what we are tasked to do with this after vaccination is that you need to see would this otherwise also have occurred or is it more than you would expect? And I know that many people are looking at that uh, continuously, like monitoring whether the uh, observed rates are higher than what we would expect. So that's number one. Then the other thing that has been put in place, which is in addition to what we were usually doing, which is this constant monitoring of the adverse events, is what we call cohort event monitoring, which is like the V-safe activities in the US, but it's also in Europe that people actually can sign up at the moment that they are vaccinated to actually report their adverse events. So that's like what we would call active surveillance. And that has been done. And at the same time, there are also systems in place now that if there is something occurring, they would actually be able to very rapidly assess whether that signal is a true signal or whether, you know, what is the access rate, like how, and, and this is all the information that is needed to reevaluate the benefit risk ratio. So we need to generate data that informs the regulators to reassess that benefit risk ratio. And I think there is a lot of data coming and it's very rapid. The speed now is like so different than it was with H1N1. Sure. So nowadays it's like there is a signal and uh, the next PRAC meeting, you need to provide the evidence for, you know, to substantiate that signal or not. Whereas in the past, the people were working for months and even years to get the right answer. So 
I think a lot of people are doing their utmost best to get the evidence there as much as possible, fast as possible. Yeah. And how much of your work at VAC for EU is just that, sort of monitoring for safety signals in the context of... Um, so what we are doing is more the epidemiological study. So not uh, for the EMA, we are working with the cohort event monitoring. So, you know, collecting these adverse events and have nice des- dashboard for the EMA so they can look at it. But then there are also the studies that need to be done just to compare, you know, is 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 this occurring more of, often after Moderna or after, you know, Pfizer vaccine or with the AstraZeneca? So comparison between vaccines, which is typically not done at the pre-licensure stage where they just have versus placebo. So we try to assess and, and provide the, the numbers, like how often does this occur? And is it more frequent after one vaccine than the other? And does that differ between different groups like age, gender, uh, back, you know, comorbidity, etc. So that's the work we are doing. Number crunching. <laughs> <laughs> we love it's number crunching. <laughs> we love number crunching. You know that. <laughs> one one of the things that's been happening, if you look at the debate, particularly in the U.S., where this has gotten so politicized, what's intriguing is there's you know the vaccine hesitance group has sort of been lumped in as sort of Trumpists. And MIT did a really interesting study where they surreptitiously, quietly went into some of these chat rooms where these people were talking in Facebook and on Twitter and on, you know, 4chan and some of these other blogs. And what they found was rather than just being, you know, nut nutbag rubes, they were actually looking at a lot of the epidemiological data and discussing the risk factors. There was a recent study that was put out as part of the six month. Obviously, we have a couple uh, vaccines that are still under conditional approval. So they're required to do six month safety studies and efficacy studies. And one of the studies that was published, you know, proving hospitalization, you know, protection against hospitalization, fine, that's the end point. But if you flip to the back and looked at the all cause death, which they have to publish, and 44,000 people in two arms, you know, 15 deaths vaccinated, 14 deaths unvaccinated. It's like, whoa, holy cow. Are we really into a situation now where you know, we've really targeted very well the really highly at risk group, putting these like we're hearing with Joe Biden now saying we're going to fire you if you don't get vaccinated and you're 35 or basketball players who are 28 to run, you know, five kilometers an hour playing the game and are in exceptional health are now being told if they don't get vaccinated at 28 years old, they're going to be fired, a million dollar job. Are are we doing the right things there? Are we going overboard? What should we be doing here? You know, there there are at least two components for why or two reasons for why you get vaccinated. So first one is to protect yourself. and, And I think it's clear that not for everybody on a personal level, that's going to be the same decision. And then if you have low risk of COVID, then why should you get vaccinated? But it's not just sure. the only reason of why you need to get vaccinated. It's also to protect others that can actually not be protected. So we often forget this solidarity principle and, and which we have as a society. I think that we should not just protect ourselves, but also those around us that are more vulnerable. And I think that's where the world is quite different now in that some people just don't want to take that step to to take that small risk that you may have because something may happen after the vaccination, although they seem to be very safe. There is a potential, very small potential for an adverse event and, and to weigh it against, you know, the benefit that it may be for society. So if we would get 95%, you know, vaccinated, we would be in a situation that those that actually do not have the benefit of the vaccine because they're immunocompromised would not to be worried so much and and could go out. So I think that discussion needs to happen. And I don't know whether you should, you know, oblige people. I don't think that that usually works, that you really oblige them, but they should be 
they may be nudged or, or, you know, be told like what the good job it is that they would actually protect the others. Like the problem is, I think when you put in these mandates where, you know, you start saying we're going to threaten your job or your livelihood, people start digging in their heels. This becomes an issue of individual sovereignty. And I think that that's the problem. Exactly. You know, I think it be, yeah. it becomes a question of right and wrong is a question of yeah. moral right and wrong, unfortunately. Yeah. So I think we, we should be able to convince them with arguments, not with threats. That's the, I think in general. What I, I, think I agree so. with you. I would hope that common sense. Even with my kids, it works. <laughs> <laughs> One would hope with common sense it would prevail. One of the other things then that we touched on in that previous study is, you know, the fact is, yes, we could very quickly with mRNA produce a Delta vaccine. But the reason why probably it's not being done is it's going to be hard. Vast majority, you know, like you said, 90% now of people across the EU over 65 are vaccinated. I mean, that doesn't leave much space there to run a clinical trial. What are the challenges that we're going to have to develop targeted vaccines for these specific variants? And what are some options that you see maybe to get around this? Oh, it's challenging. So uh, and and I, I think that's what we are facing. But um, so the, the one of the answers could be to have uh, correlates of protection. So we look at not at disease as an outcome anymore, as we have done before, like, but at correlates of protection. Now, the difficulty there is, and people are searching. So it means you have another marker that would tell you whether the, effect, the vaccine is effective. Currently, and there was a nice nature paper that, that the neutralizing antibodies would be possible to be used as a correlate of protection. But the problem is, is that across the different vaccines, they have been determined differently. So the assays were different. So, so work is ongoing to use that. That would be one way. Yeah, it's, it's challenging. Or to go to parts of the world where, uh, where there's still the cases, but yeah. it's become unethical. And so you can only do this as long as there would not otherwise be a vaccine available that they could use an effective vaccine available and, and otherwise we run out. So it's a big challenge. And uh, I know a lot of people are, are looking into this and how to address this uh, better because there is a need to be able to do this rapidly and to change the vaccines and, and the variants. Because so. mRNA lends itself to quickly changing. The problem with yep. doing testing in sub-Saharan Africa, of course, is you run into the same supply chain problems you have with trying to manufacture there. I mean, you're, you're talking minus 80 degrees and there isn't a lot of that capacity right now. And with the political situation in South Africa, which is the one place where you may be able to produce, that's might not be an, a starter right now. It's a real challenge. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a real challenge. So One, one question here, Miriam, before we, we shut down, I'm sure right now it's just a scramble. You're just trying to get through every day and you're, your phone going off, you're getting one email a minute. It's crazy busy for you. When you get a chance to slow down and take a breath, where do you see VAC for EU in five years? What do you see you folks doing? Well, first of all, we need to get through the hurdle of or the the load of studies that is currently ongoing, and many of them will last at least for three years. So we will be busy for quite a bit, even if there is not a new pandemic. But what, what I hope is that there will not be a new pandemic, but that we have built trust and capacity enough that, you know, this is like a infrastructure to remain. Uh, so to do actually constant monitoring of the of the benefits and risk of vaccines. So that's what my hope is. I think we are on a very good way in terms of that we have members, we, we build up these collaborations, all, all of, you know, the, the unitedness and the readiness to do this. So the way that Back for You was built is based on membership. People just said, we want to work together. So it was not that there was a big pot of money that was being spread out and people were coming to the money. They were really 
coming together because they they know that they want to do this together. So I I I think that's a good basis of continuation. It's not a end you know project lifetime where then it it goes away. But people just getting together and building relationships and collaborations. And I think we are there to stay. We are there to stay and then uh, to be able to to work with more stakeholders um, and and do the things that are needed for them. How can people get a hold of you if they want to work with you on a vaccine project? How can they contact you? So we have a website. Uh, it's backforyou.org and there is a button where you can request for a study or any other contact uh, uh, to get. So, so you can go out there. Yeah. It's great to see this has worked out so well for you as we were there you know, and helped get you started at the ground up on VAC for EU. I, uh, I'm smiling. I'm pleased to see that everything's happening and it's great. And it's just such a wonderful opportunity that the serendipity was there where we had this available, this resource. It's fantastic. And I uh, wish you all success. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye.